One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about landscaping. That sounds like a joke, but it's not. And I'll be talking about the murder of Jennifer Jackson, a successful investment banker and single mother whose lifeless body was discovered by her 18-year-old daughter. I just dribbled tea down my chin. And now I'm about to tell you a story. I can't wait. Did you know that spilling tea is like... (laughs) You sound really old right now. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, it's gossip. Spilling the tea, yeah, is like giving the gossip. So you literally spilled the tea down your face, and now you're going (laughs) to spill the tea to me. I sure am. (laughs) Get ready, people. (laughs) I feel like... Do you ever see on YouTube where people, like... They want to talk shit on something, and it's just them, like, with a little mug of tea, <laughs> yes. and they've got their eyebrows yes. raised. That's, that's how I am right now. <laughs> so I have a confession to make. Okay. Last week broke me. Uh, last week broke me. I literally uh-huh. have been sleeping on a hot pad for a week now because I was brought so down by yes. your topic that I was slouched in this chair <laughs> as if I was melting into the floor and I physically hurt my back. You looked like Froyo. You know how <laughs> yeah, it just like melts in on itself. So last week I talked about Lamonte McIntyre. A Kansas City case, he was wrongfully convicted for 23 years in a double murder. Uh, There was corruption at every turn. It was horrible. It was fucking terrible. We cried like three times. Yes. Yes. And (laughs) I I can't say anything other than it just, something had snapped inside me. (laughs) And I had this list of cases that I wanted to cover. Because my friend Sandy, like I was telling you, she sent. Nope. Yeah, I was like. Can't do another murder. I need something light. I need the cool whip of lawsuits. And I found it. Wonderful. I'm so excited. This is... Okay, this case cracks me up. It's another local one. Really? Yes. Yes. Um, This is like... You know how people are like, first world problems. This is a first world problem of epic proportions. Excellent. Okay. This is a story about the Homeowners Association of Avenon Villas in Olathe, yeah, Kansas. Yeah, I'm familiar with Avenon Villas, yes. Okay. How are you familiar? Just, I've seen them. Okay. Yeah, that's my bubble. That's, that's, in the, bu- that's in the Johnson County bubble, which is where I like to conduct my business. <laughs> <laughs> Just my own personal business. I don't work in the Johnson no, County bubble. No, you don't. <laughs> okay, so I'm glad you brought it up because I did want to start with, you know, yeah. last week we kind of explained to people, you know, when you say you're from Kansas City, it yeah. can kind of be from like actual Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas, which yes. is divided by the state line, obviously, or one of the surrounding suburbs. You and I grew up in Johnson County, Kansas, yes. which means jack shit to anyone outside, outside of this of bubble. This, yes. <laughs> but would you mind telling what... So what's the perception of Johnson County? Johnson Kansas? County is a um, it's well, it's one of the wealthiest counties in the United States. It's predominantly Caucasian. Yeah, overwhelmingly, it's uh, <laughs> it's the white bread of yes, counties. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, there's uh, 
the worst part of Johnson County would be described as middle class. Like, there's no... Yeah. There's, I mean... And then there's very, very wealthy areas of Johnson County as well. So McMansions, as far as the eye can see. Yes. <laughs> everything is beige. Yes. yes. Johnson County beige is a term that yes. is used to describe the way people decorate their houses in Johnson County. Various shades of duck poop is how I would describe yes. it. Like, no one goes outside this, like, range of, like, seven colors. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I... Still live in Johnson County. Mm-hmm. I've never lived outside of Johnson <laughs> County. And every time I kind of, like, mention to my dad that I have, like, looked at a house that I like that's outside of Johnson County, he's like, why would you want to live there? <laughs> so you want to die? <laughs> <laughs> so I was born and raised and have never ventured outside of Johnson County. Except to record this podcast. That's correct. I have to travel across into Kansas City, Missouri. Your dad requires that you check in every half hour. We have to disrupt the podcast so you can say still living. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's that's good. I that's what I wanted people to understand. It's like Olathe, Kansas. To people outside of here, they think, oh, Kansas, small town, cows. No, Olathe, Kansas. Um, it's think, one of, think more stuck yes, up. Step it's one life. of many suburbs that, yeah. are of the, that are in the, the Kansas City metro area, but it is stuck inside of the Johnson County bubble. What if this podcast really wasn't about lawsuits? What if this is our sneaky way of, like, giving people information about Kansas City? <laughs> Like, the first episode when we talked about how, like, no, um, every, you know, that episode of American Greed that was, like, humble people from, you know, and it's like, no, some of us are assholes. We've got people of all kinds here. Okay, anyway, I will move on. All right. 2012. Mm -hmm. Jim Hildenbrand moved to Olathe, Kansas. He'd been living in Iowa. He had this architectural consulting business, but, you know, he'd raised his kids. His dad had died, and he wanted to move closer to his mom. So he looked at Avenon Villas in Olathe, Kansas, and he thought it seemed like a nice place to live. It's one of those... um, Places where you pay, like, 200 bucks a month and you get maintenance provided, you know, snow removal, blah, blah, blah. And um, let's see. There's a pool. There's a clubhouse. It's kind of like, you know, townhouse style villas. Yeah. Okay. Are they attached villas? I don't think so. Okay. Well, my parents... Live in Johnson County in a villa. Uh-huh. There's our detached villas, okay, though. So yeah. it comes with all of the, you know, you get all the maintenance and everything, but it's your own right. home. And I think that's what this, what this is, Because I did yeah. look at a few pictures. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's see. So Jim moves to Olathe into a nice three-bedroom home in Avenon Villas. There's like 150 homes in the area. Nice area. Almost immediately... Jim gets off on the wrong foot with the HOA. Oh, shit. (laughs) Johns County HOAs don't fuck around. Uh, No, they don't. And you're going to really find out how much they don't fuck around in this episode. (laughs) So they immediately start arguing over where he can put his satellite dish. And I didn't write this part down, but... Mm, That's mistake number one. Oh, A satellite dish? Well, here's Mm. the thing. They didn't have an issue with the satellite dish. Really? <laughs> they wanted it, and again, I should have written this down, 
Because this seems so hard to believe. Mm -hmm. They wanted it, like, on a pole in his front yard. And he was like, no, that sounds tacky, which I agree. He wanted it, like, back kind of hidden by the AC unit. But they they have these standards, Mm -hmm. and this is the way it is. And so they argue back and forth, back and forth. That sounds crazy. Then (laughs) they get mad at him over where he had placed this big ceramic flower pot. Wow. Yep. He, um, wherever he put it... Was not okay. (laughs) Uh, Same with this little, like, statue of St. Francis. I assume, like, one of those just kind of lawn things. Again, not okay. (laughs) HOA was on him. Another fun thing they did was they charged him tens of thousands of dollars for parking cars in his driveway for too long. What? And I wish I could have found the actual number because tens of tens of thousands of dollars? I don't know. I don't that seems insane that to me. That sounds crazy. So Jim was not a fan of the HOA, if you can believe it. Yeah, and they were not fans like of it. him. No. Yeah, things were not going great. Then in 2013, Jim did the unthinkable. <laughs> oh, <God>. So <laughs> So he got some landscaping done. And he wanted... I love how big your eyes are. I'm like, oh, no. So here's the thing. He had this landscaping plan. He sent it to the HOA. They approved it. My understanding is that once the landscaping guy actually got out there, he's like, "Mm, you know, because of where your utilities are buried, we're going to have to change a few things. And the guy suggested putting in a very low accent wall Mm -hmm. that would go... And we're talking like... I saw a picture. Like a foot? Yeah. Maybe two feet? I don't know. Uh, A foot or two tall and then it would wrap around from kind of the back all the way snaking through to the front yeah so that part was not part of the plan that was approved but jim was like go ahead and do it anyway it's gonna look really nice mm-hmm. mm. big, big mistake, mistake. Yep. huge <laughs> okay <laughs> julia, julia roberts <laughs> So he took his shopping bags and he just... (laughs) Okay, so almost immediately as they're putting this in, people start driving by his house, slowing down, taking pictures, and driving off. (laughs) What? Like, not stopping and talking to him, not saying, hey, we don't like this. Just like, according to him, they were slowing down, taking pictures. I mean... Oh, my god! I don't know. Like, he's under FBI surveillance. It sounds, it sounds so weird. <laughs> uh, so, pretty soon, Jim starts getting these letters from the HOA attorney. Like, that accent wall is not appreciated or allowed. That soil you added is over the top. Get that river rock out of here. Tear it all out. Mr. Hildenbrand, tear down this wall. <laughs> you writing that last oh yeah and you're like (laughs) i was giggling at my own jokes so i'm i'm gonna jump in right here because if i were you i'd be like okay this sounds kind of over the top but i wonder what that accent wall looked like yes okay i think it is beautiful Uh uh-huh i think it's absolutely gorgeous and just from what little landscaping we've had done at this house I mean, it had to have cost a, a fortune. fortune. Yes. I, when you were describing all that he was getting done, yes. I was like, this has to be a very expensive 
Oh, yeah. Not cheap at all. Yeah. So I've got a picture of Jim's house with the landscaping and the accent wall. And I'm just going to show it to you. It looks great. Yes. It looks amazing. It looks absolutely amazing, yes. doesn't it? it it's yeah. beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. absolutely beautiful. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we're on the same page yes. there. Yes. It looks amazing and super expensive. Yes. It's not like he got like shoddy work done and the quality no. didn't match the neighborhood. Looks amazing. Looks great. Right. But no one had a hobby, I guess, because the HOA <laughs> like was on him. Oh, God. They kept sending him letters telling him his landscaping was against the rules and he needed to rip it all out. Mm-hmm. Which, like, good God. I yeah. mean, anyway, so here's a quote from Jim. He said, I thought in my career I'd come across just about every walk of life, but this group takes the cake. They are the most hateful, mean spirited people I have ever seen. Wow. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> In case you're wondering. Yes. <laughs> so Jim sued them. Yeah. And they countersued. So this went to Johnson County District Court and Jim lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the judge was like, look, guys, come on. You didn't submit your full plan. So why don't you go ahead and submit the full plan? Let the HOA review yeah. it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll approve it, you know. My take is maybe the judge was like, can we... Is this for real? Is this what we're using our time for right now? Yes. So, Jim did. Jim submitted the full plan to the HOA, and they were like, nope, we still hate it. (laughs) So (laughs) They rejected most of his plan and told him that they rejected a bunch of the stuff he'd already done, too. Jim was pissed. Yeah. But the court was like, sorry, dude, this was... You submitted the plan, they acted in good faith, they reviewed it, they rejected you, time to walk away. Right. Jim's like, I never walk away. (laughs) (laughs) I, okay, well, I'll tell you my theory on this later. Okay, so, he took it to the Court of Appeals. Wow. Yes. And this time, Jim won. Uh, The appeals court reversed the lower court's decision and sent it back to the lower court. Uh They're like... District Court, can you wrap this up, please? So the appellate court said that the district court used an incomplete test when it said that the HOA acted in good faith when it denied Jim's full landscaping plan. Um, And what I think that means is, because I was only reading articles and not reading the actual court opinion, (laughs) is that the court... The lower court didn't try to figure out whether Jim was treated differently than other residents when they came forward with their plan. So how do you know that they were really acting in good faith? So Jim's like, cool, let's do it. Let's find out if I was really treated fairly. I bet not. (laughs) (laughs) And the HOA is like, could we not, though? Because this is taking forever and we hate this. (laughs) (laughs) By this point... Okay, I want you to guess how much Jim had spent in legal That's fees. That's what I was literally just thinking. Yes. How much are they spending in legal fees? And who's paying for the HOA's legal fees? They are. I mean, that that's the responsibility of the residents. Holy shit. Can you believe that? How much? Jim had spent $200,000 in legal fees. <laughs> and the HOA had spent $160,000. Holy shit. Over landscaping that looked great. Great. Holy shit. Yes. 
I mean, this is the epitome of, I just, yeah. Last week, we're talking about a man who's wrongfully convicted, couldn't afford a decent attorney, and this week, I've got <laughs> people who we are throwing $360,000 in legal fees over a retaining wall that yes. looks amazing. Yes. Holy shit. We've got a lot of extremes in Kansas City. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, and oh, and by the way, this had been going on for four years at this point. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Ridiculous. Now I have a hilarious quote from Kevin Drake, who was on the HOA board when the lawsuit went to trial. He, honest to God, told this to the Kansas City Star. We're not the Gestapo. We try to work with everybody in this neighborhood. <laughs> But we have to enforce our deed restrictions. This individual was not going to stop with just putting in the wall. Next would have been a koi pond, or he would have put some playground structure or something up. We had to say no. You knew the rules when you moved in. If you don't like it, you're free to move someplace else. Oh my god! A koi pond! Oh, the humanity! Playground. My favorite part is we're not the Gestapo. <laughs> Gestapo. I feel like if at any point in your life you honestly feel the need to like clarify, <laughs> I'm not the Gestapo. Yeah. Maybe it's time to stop. Yeah, maybe think. you need to reevaluate your life. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, to me, god. to me that sounds like a joke. Mm-hmm. It honestly sounds like a mockumentary type yep. thing. Absolutely. Oh. So let's all just take a minute and be so glad that we don't have to be near a koi pond or no, playground, playground equipment. equipment. Oh. <laughs> Perish the thought. <laughs> so, again, everyone needed a hobby. No one had one. So they kept going. <laughs> and along the way, they were like, uh, loser pays legal fees. Because, you know, these are racking yeah. up. <sighs> so here's another great quote I love. So... The the Kansas City Star did a whole series on this, and it's really entertaining. And a lot of people didn't really want to talk to the star directly, but people would still post on the HOA website. Yeah. And one person posted, and I, I think this is so true. She wrote, or he, who knows, I think it's time for the homeowners to vote as to whether we wish to keep spending our money on this litigation. My objection to continuing is that the landscaping we are trying to fight is the nicest looking in the entire yes. neighborhood. And so all we're doing is trying to make a point rather than improving the quality of the neighborhood. Thank you. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. My God. Why yes. are we doing this? <laughs> no kidding. And I'm sure as, the ho- as a homeowner in this neighborhood, they were like, uh, I am done footing the bill. Uh, yeah, this that's is ridiculous. That was going to be my next question. Yes. Like, at some point, the people in this neighborhood have got to be like, wait, I'm not spending my money on this. Yes, I have way Holy more fun ways than I can think of. Yeah. Oh. So, I'm going to interrupt things oh, God. for just a minute here, because as I was reading some of these articles, I kind of honestly was thinking, all right, this HOA sounds nuts, but is Jim kind of nuts, too? Because right. why, you know... Yeah. I... And I say that as a person who, on principle, does a lot of stupid shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I... I see myself in Jim a bit yeah. of, like, I've got this house that's worth, like, $400,000, um, which it, 
that's not the part that I relate to. The part that I relate to is, um, I got a house worth four hundred thousand dollars. I'm gonna spend two hundred thousand dollars in legal fees just to prove a point. Yes. Um, I'm gonna clear out all my savings. Yes. Just to be like, you can't tell me what to do yeah. with my yard. Yeah. So anyway, I was I was seriously thinking, okay, is Jim a little over the top? Here? Yeah. Then, this same neighborhood made headlines for a different reason. Oh, my gosh. This story is nuts. Oh, my gosh. It is, it is like twirling the mustache yes. evil. Okay. Oh, God. So, I'm going to tell you about Stuart and Marsha Holland. They'd been in the neighborhood at this point for about five years. They were actually next-door neighbors mm-hmm. to Jim. Um, they were in a reverse one-and-a-half-story house, which yeah. is like, you know, you got your main level and then the lower level. It's not like some crappy basement. It's, it's you know. It's a finish. There's bedrooms down there. It's a complete right. finish. Yeah. Right. And the reason they moved in there was because Marsha's dad, Ed, had cancer. Mm-hmm. So Ed and his wife, Mary, lived in Florida, but Ed's, you know, going through cancer. So Marsha and Stuart were like, hey— Please come live with us. You know, you need you need more care than you're getting now. We want to be around you. We want to kind of take care of you. Mm-hmm. So they bought this house in Avenon Villas for this purpose so that, you know, the mom and dad could have the main floor. Stuart and Marsha could be on the lower level. And, like, the day before they bought the place, their real estate agent was like, oh, hey, you know, by the way, you can't park a car in your driveway overnight in this neighborhood. And so they're kind of like, huh, oh, uh-oh. Yeah, that's going to be a problem if we have three people yeah, living here. Yeah, well, and actually four. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right, yeah. But yeah, they had three ve- vehicles. Yeah. And the real estate agent was like, you know, I, I imagine it's not going to be a big deal. You just have to get approval from the board. So, like, you ask them for permission for to have this third vehicle. And then it's one of those things where every year you renew the yeah. permission. So that's what they did. Yeah. No big deal. okay (laughs) so they're like you know this is perfect for all of us what could possibly go wrong absolutely yeah okay then in january 2017 they applied for their renewal but they didn't hear back Mm -hmm. then that summer a board member apparently approached Stuart and was like we really don't enjoy that car being in your driveway anymore and the guy apparently asked, what will you guys do if we deny your permit? And Stuart was kind of like, uh... <laughs> Why would you deny it? What? Yeah, and the thing was, so Ed, Ed's still going through cancer treatment. He uses the car just about every day, usually to go to his medical yeah. appointments. And, you know... You don't want to get rid of the car. I So he's like, well, we might have to move. Yeah. A few weeks later, they got a letter from the HOA. Oh, God. And this comes directly from the Kansas City Star article. I'm going to read to you from the letter they received. The look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> The decision is that you will no longer be granted a parking exception, and all vehicles parked at your residence must be in compliance with the current parking policy. Avenon Villa Homes Board of Directors has a duty to fulfill their responsibility of maintaining the integrity of the neighborhood. The Hollands were perplexed. 
I wasn't sure what that meant, Stuart Holland said, as if having a car here would somehow destroy property values. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I probably don't need to say this, but it was a nice car. Right. You know, like they showed a picture, you know, it's not some clunker. Yeah. God. So again, Poor Ed. Yeah. He was 83. Oh, my god! Going through cancer treatments. And he, he said to the star, what is the harm of parking in the driveway? I guess I'm too old to understand what being a good neighbor is. Oh, poor Ed. I know. Oh, I my know. gosh. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with these people? These people are monsters. <laughs> so his wife, Marianne, said... That basically, as soon as they got that letter, she wanted to move. Yeah. She was like, I cannot believe that these people don't have compassion for this situation. Yeah. Ugh. Terrible. That is terrible! <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart Holland wrote a response on the HOA's website. He wrote, the board is making it very difficult for us to stay. In fact, they seem to be trying to force us out. How did a group of three become so powerful and intimidating in our neighborhood? How sad that the integrity of the neighborhood is more important than the people. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stuart is a church deacon. Um, At one point in his response, he wrote, We realize that everyone in the neighborhood isn't Christian, but we still ask the question, What would Jesus do? (laughs) (laughs) WWJD. And the neighborhood's like, Jesus who? (laughs) Never heard of the fella. (laughs) Does he have a car? (laughs) Not parking it in my driveway. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. uh, Oh, my gosh. Wow. So. Wow. uh, To me, the craziest part is some of the responses that they got from the neighbors in this neighborhood. Uh-huh. Because, like, we actually have something going on in my neighborhood right now where um, someone <laughs> is mad that this, like, 80-year-old woman leaves her recycling bins on her front porch. It's uh-huh. just, it's what's most convenient for her. Um, she doesn't have, like, a screened-in porch or anything mm-hmm. where she could put, so that's where she has it. And the city has sent her a letter saying, we're going to fine you if you continue to mm-hmm. keep this up. Yeah. And basically, once the entire neighborhood figured out what was going on, there was this big uproar. There's been, you know, news stories about it, and people are siding with her. Like, yeah. leave this old woman She's alone. She's an old woman, yes. yes. Good grief. And I'm sorry, but... There are bigger eyesores than (laughs) the recycling recycling bin on the front porch. Good God. Yeah. So that was, that would kind of be my expectation is like once people figure out what's going on, oh my God, they're trying to get this 83 year old man to get cancer. Yeah. Uh, No. Uh, (laughs) No, this was not that response. I'm sure some people were sympathetic. Yeah. Because, I mean, come on. Yeah. There had to be. But I'm going to read to you some of the quotes that were left in response. Cars parked in driveways slash streets can quickly become an eyesore and an embarrassment. An embarrassment? (laughs) We don't want people to know that we drive drive. on these things. That's a secret. 
I believe that the neighborhood and the board has been kind and considerate to allow Stuart for five years to not follow the rules we all agreed to when we moved in. Going forward, I wonder why it would be so difficult for him to get by with two cars instead of three, particularly given the availability of Uber and Lyft. Yeah, you need to take a fucking Uber to your cancer treatments, Ed. Sorry about that. Yeah, I love the idea of, I'm sure an 83-year-old is just going to pull out his smartphone and be real comfortable with Uber. Give me a break. Right. Come on. (laughs) So that quote is attributed to Jim and Fran McDonald. I just feel like, oh, we we need to make sure that people know. Yeah. I'm just being an ass. Yes, I just think, it's fine. I love okay. it. Here's another Jim. If you knew you had three cars, you should have bought, bought a three-car garage lot, period, said D. Garcia. Not the board's fault you didn't follow the rules. Rules are there for a reason, and they are only trying to uphold what's already in place. Everyone else lives by the bylaws. What makes you different? Wow. <laughs> Last one. This one comes from Gestapo Man. Gestapo Man. And by that I mean he is not the Gestapo yeah. because he specifically, he specifically said, he's, said not. he's not the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. I am always amazed when neighbors complain about our deed restrictions years after they have moved in. I guess when they initially sign off on all the documents, they think that some of the rules won't apply to them or won't be enforced. Good luck with your decision to comply or move. Wow. These people are terrible. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Really bad. I would fucking move. I would, too. (laughs) I would, too. And you know what? Unfortunately, it's not necessarily that easy to just sell your house and move and whatever. But that's what I... I think that's what I would do. Well, and especially... It's always a pain and horrible to move, but... Uh, with an 83-year-old who has cancer, you're yeah. going to move him? I mean, yeah. my God. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, I've got a quick side note. Oh, God. <laughs> so Norman and I used to live in a more put-together neighborhood, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got a foreclosure, and it was in this neighborhood where people, I mean, nowhere near this level, but, yeah. you know, people really cared about appearances and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was our first house. We were kind of just getting used to things and didn't even know all the neighbors yet. Mm -hmm. Someone left an anonymous letter on our door telling us that our lawn was ugly and we needed to hire someone to keep it up. Holy shit. And I wanted to move. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't even compare to what these people are. No, kidding. But I just, I remember feeling so uncomfortable is that where norman's obsession about lawn care came from because maybe he got shamed your guys's yard compared to everybody else on your street now looks amazing um, that's only because of where we are now <laughs> back at the old neighborhood they were like you two kids <laughs> oh my god yeah it was oh man it was crazy and you know what killed me was the person left that note on our door while we were out at Lowe's buying flowers and stuff to put. And so then I was like, great. This person <laughs> is going to think, thing. yeah, yes. that it worked. They're going to yes. be like, oh, great. Anonymous letters are wonderful. <laughs> this is not at all cowardly or going to make somebody uncomfortable. But seriously, for oh, 
we lived there for a couple more years and I always wonder like, okay, who wrote us that? You know, it just, you feel totally uncomfortable when your neighbors say crap to you. Let me tell you about my, yeah, my experience. So we, I live in a neighborhood, but Mm -hmm. we do not have an HOA, but I live in a small suburb of Kansas City. I live in Merriam. Mm -hmm. And so we have, um... A very, I'll say, involved codes department. (laughs) So, codes enforcement is, like, on top of shit in Miriam. So, um, Zach, my husband, got this, (laughs) (laughs) got this, like, wild hair that he was going to, you know, redo our whole yard. He Mm -hmm. went to the grass pad, which is this place, you know, you can get a whole lawn system and whatever. And so, he's doing these steps to because we didn't our our grass wasn't great when we moved in and so right. we went a few years without doing anything and then a couple years ago he was like I'm gonna turn this yard around yeah and so one of the steps is that you had to basically scalp the yard you had to cut mm-hmm. it all the way down and then you had to reseed and so he did this <laughs> and then what a normal person would do They would bag the grass as they went because you're cutting off a lot of grass. Okay. And you can't have that there when you reseed. Mm -hmm. What my husband did was blow that grass into the gutter (laughs) on our street. Oh. And so you have our bald yard. And then a foot mound of grass in the street. And was Zach just standing there like, wasn't me. Yeah, so, like, I don't know, a day goes by, and I'm at home by myself, and there's uh-huh. a knock on the door, and I open it up, and it's the Merriam Codes Enforcer. Oh, my God. And he's like, um, is this your grass in the street? <laughs> he said, no, what he said was, did you blow this gr- your grass in the street? <laughs> like, clearly there's no fucking grass in our yard. And there's a shit ton of grass in the street. So I'm like, uh, my husband did. <laughs> and he's like, you have to clean it up because it will, if it rains, it'll get washed into the storm drains. It'll clog yeah. them up and it'll cause flooding. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he's like, had you not been home today, I would have written you a ticket. Oh, my. Yes. For but how much? So, I, he didn't say. Oh, okay. And he's like, so I will, since you were home, and now you're going to clean it up, uh-huh. I will give you a warning. And I was like, okay, thanks. And he left. And I got on the phone so fast <laughs> and called and yelled at Zach. And I was like, I fucking told you not to blow it in the street. And you were like, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Zach. <laughs> what else annoys you about him? <laughs> we don't have the time. <laughs> Just kidding, Zachary. I love you so much. <laughs> this podcast is all about educating people about Kansas City yes. and letting you air your grievances about your husband. Um, okay, I was about to tell one on Norm, but we don't have the time. We don't have we time, don't time have for the this. Time. Okay, okay. All right. So even the point of that story was even without an HOA. Yeah, you can still have people. (laughs) But I think that the reason that we got the code violation was valid. You can't have a foot of dead grass piled up in the street. That sounds really nice. (laughs) Sounds beautiful. (laughs) So 
I couldn't figure out how that whole thing was resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I threw it in just because I think it says a lot yeah. about this HOA, a lot about the neighborhood. Yep. And it really made me go, okay, you know what, Jim? I get you, Jim. Yeah. You know, it's... You're not you're not irrational here. Right. Although maybe you have a lot of extra money clearly laying around that you just yeah. want to light on fire. Have you know. ever considered sponsoring a podcast? It only costs two hundred thousand dollars per episode to sponsor us. It's a real bargain. It's a huge bargain. That's what we need. We just need like people from Johnson County. Yeah. Yeah. To, to sponsor us. So in late January 2018, the district court finally reached a decision. Uh, Johnson County District Court Judge Rhonda Mason said that the HOA did treat Jim unfairly when it denied his landscaping plan. She was like, y'all are intense. (laughs) (laughs) She pointed to some emails that went back and forth between the HOA board members and was like, you guys all agreed to tow a hard line here. And sometimes when you decide you're going to tow a hard line... You make it so that you can't really be reasonable. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened here. Yeah. She said, I don't think there's any secret that this was a contentious relationship. The court finds that the relationship between the parties played a role in this application being Mm -hmm. denied. For sure. But it wasn't a total victory for Jim. Because she was like, yeah... They don't like you. They treated you unfairly, but you broke the rules when you didn't, you know, fill out the proper mm-hmm. application before you did your project. So she ordered him to pay the HOA $25,000. And she was like, both of you are paying your own legal wow. fees. Yes. So, again, that means that the other residents in this community will have to pay that HOA bill. Yeah. By this point... Jim had spent more than $300,000 in legal fees. And the HOA wouldn't tell the star how much they'd spent, but the the star did some digging. And it looks like we're talking a little over $300,000. Over very nice landscaping. Very nice landscaping, yes. Beautiful landscaping. So I'm going to close with a quote from Jim here. (laughs) Jim said... I hope this opens the doors for all homeowners to take a stand and fight for your rights, your integrity, and your freedom. It's always been America's dream to own property. And what I did was beautifying, not degrading. I have to agree with Jim. (laughs) Here's my thing that I kept thinking this whole time. Yeah. First of all, boy, howdy, do I never want to live there. Um, More importantly, quitting has a bad reputation. Yeah. But quitting can be a good, good thing well, sometimes. Man. You know what I mean? Like yes, he spent all this money. Just move. Yeah. And and I say that to the HOA too. Yeah. Drop it. Yes. Drop it. Who cares? Right. There are so Yikes. many problems in the world. Get a hobby. Yes. <laughs> Any hobby. Oh God. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Huh. So that was my light, fluffy story. Well, it's way lighter and way fluffier than I noticed last you week. didn't cry this time. That. I did not. I did not. Why cry. not? Are you not sympathetic <laughs> to the landscaping drama? Brady, just imagine there could have been a koi pond if they hadn't stopped him. <laughs> not a koi pond. <laughs> Uh, First, it's a koi pod, and next, it's one of those hideous gazing balls. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. Something I did not include in here was the judge mentioned that one of the board members had a gazing ball. Well, that's hideous! <laughs> and she was like, I'm sure the only reason that was brought in was because of this litigation. Like, you guys all need to calm down. That is so funny that you brought up a gazing ball. Because well, I think they're hideous. <laughs> I, when I'm like driving around and I see a house that has one, I'm like, that house is so nice, but it's got a fucking gazing ball. Who wants a gazing ball in their yard? Okay, I've got a question. Yes. What's the point of a gazing ball? Is it really I'm, just to gaze? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. I've never understood the point of them. I think they're hideous. I don't know why you'd put one in your yard. I can't wait to get you one for your birthday. Oh, God. A big one. <laughs> Real nice big one. Oh my god. I loved that. I thought that was excellent. I really needed a light one. Yes, I, mean, I appreciate it. Yeah. To it was very refreshing to be reading these articles and just be kind of giggling yes. at everyone instead of like sobbing, sobbing yeah. and wondering what's wrong with the just world. Melting into the floor. Yes. yes. I did last week. All right. Unfortunately, my case is not as light as yours. Is it not about landscaping? It's not about landscaping. Hmm. Weird. Going into this, though, I did a little inventory okay. of our previous episodes that we've recorded. Did you realize that you're obsessed with murder? Well, let's... <laughs> It goes a step further than that. Oh, okay. So, in previous episodes, I have covered the murder or attempted murder of 16 people. Good God, Brandy. Of those 16, nine of them were stabbed. So, clearly, I'm a fucking psychopath who loves stabbings. So, naturally, what did I do today? I have another stabbing case for you. At least you see a pattern. Jesus. My pattern is that I somehow talk about penises yes, like every yes, other you episode. You are obsessed with penises. I'm obsessed with stabbing. Um, okay, for this episode, I watched um, an episode of 48 Hours, and then I pulled from a New York Times article by Emily Bazelon. She ba- has a last name. Bazelon. B-A-Z-E-L-O-N. I love Bazelon. That sounds <laughs> no that sounds idea. really cool. I have no idea. Sorry, Emily. <laughs> okay. Nora Jackson called 911 at 5 a.m. on Sunday, June 5th, 2005, which happens to be Zach's birthday. This would 2005, have been his, he a young yeah, one. This would have been his 19th birthday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on this episode, they play a bit of the 911 call, and here's like a little chunk of it. Okay. Um, she calls and she says, please, I need an ambulance. I need an ambulance right now. Someone broke into my house. My mom. My mom is bleeding. She's in Memphis, Tennessee, so like they transfer her, I guess, to like the local dispatch for her, mm-hmm. like part of Memphis, I'm guessing. Right. So they transfer her, and when the the dispatcher comes on nora is even more worked up and she says she's not breathing she's not breathing please help me there's blood everywhere when police arrive they found jennifer jackson dead on the floor of her bedroom she was naked and had been stabbed 50 times and there was in fact blood everywhere you're kidding all (laughs) over the fucking place 
So Jennifer Jackson was a 39-year-old single mother. She was Nora Jackson's mom. Mm -hmm. They lived in a nice neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee. I think kind of a suburb area based on... Yeah. What it looked like. She was an investment banker and was very successful. She provided very well for her and Nora, and they they did great. Okay. Sergeant Heldorfer was one of the first people on the scene, and he said, I'll always remember this case just because of how savage it was. She was just riddled with wounds. Mm. This was absolutely, no doubt, a very violent scene. A very <laughs> violent scene. <laughs> A verily violent scene. (laughs) It was a bloody scene. It's what we would categorize as a rage killing. Ooh. Yes. Whoever killed Jennifer Jackson put a wicker basket over her head. It sounds strange, but Heldorfer said he'd seen that kind of thing before. When asked who puts a basket over somebody's face, Heldorfer replied, somebody who doesn't want to look at their face. Somebody who's close to them. A stranger wouldn't do that. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah, no, that that does. Um, but what did he mean by he'd seen it before? Like, not... I don't is think, that more common than I, I think it is? I think maybe he just meant in general, like, covering yeah, the face yeah. or not wanting... Yeah. So along with this basket, there was other evidence that the killer knew Jennifer. Um, There was broken glass from a door between the kitchen and the garage. At first glance, Heldorfer said it could have been the way an intruder broke into the house. So Mm -hmm. it was like um, a three, a door that had like three glass panels Mm -hmm. on it. Sorry, I have to cough. Boy. Gross. Messed up the entire podcast. We'll start again. (laughs) (laughs) Kristen, take it away. Well, like I said, last week broke me. (laughs) Okay, so it's a three-panel door, so there's three horizontal glass panels. And the middle one was the one that was broken, not the one that was down by the doorknob. So when you think about somebody breaking into a house, breaking a pane on a window, they would typically break the one that's, you know, right by the handle. Of course. So this seemed strange, right? Yes. On closer inspection... There was a hidden hinge lock. So, have you ever seen a hinge lock? It's like this oh, yeah, little, yeah. yeah it's mm-hmm. like this little thing that you slide down that keeps the door from physically being able to be open. Right. There was a hidden hinge lock on the inside, by right by the panel that was broken. Someone would have to ha- have serious knowledge of this yes. door to know that that hinge lock was there. Absolutely. And so, the investigators are like. Yeah, that doesn't look right. This Mm -hmm. is weird. What's even weirder is that the two exterior doors to the, like, that would bring you into the house. So, like, this was a door that went from the kitchen to the garage, but you still had to get into the garage some way. Sure, yeah. Those doors were locked. There was no, they were never opened. So, nobody got into the house through this door. This seemed very staged to investigators because they're like. And badly staged. Yes, because they're like, no one could have gotten to this door. The other doors are locked. Then there's no forced entry on those doors. So, mysteriously, they managed to, what, teleport into the garage. (laughs) And then they had to break this door to get into the house. Uh Doesn't make any fucking sense. No. So. They're like, okay, this is staged. Something weird is going on here. And so right off the bat, they're like, this is not what it looks like. Mm-hmm. 
people close to Nora and Jennifer seemed to agree on one thing in the early stages of the investigation. One person kept coming up when trying to figure out who could have done this to Jennifer. That person was Mark Irvin, a Methodist minister who Jennifer dated around the time of the murder. They were kind of like on again, off again, and by all accounts had a pretty tumultuous relationship. Okay. Um, Memphis detectives, Lieutenant Mark Miller and Sergeant W.D. Merritt found out that Irvin had called Jennifer the night of her murder. When asked if they liked Irvin as a suspect, Lieutenant Miller replied, I think the common thought was, man, this guy likes to talk a lot. He just kept coming back. He just kept calling. Mm -hmm. So you can look at this two ways. Either it's honest interest and concern, or he did it and he wants to know what police know. Yeah. Yeah. Irvin had an alibi of sorts. He told police that he was asleep at the time of the murder at his house in Jackson, Tennessee, 90 minutes away from Jennifer's home. Okay. So police said, if you're asleep, you're asleep. If you're at home by yourself alone, how can this be proven or disproven? Mm Mm-hmm. So... It's an alibi of sorts, but it's not one that can be verified. Right. It's not a strong one. Yes. What time was she murdered? Um, somewhere between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Oh, okay. And then Nora found her at 5 a.m. Okay. Um, police in Jackson, Tennessee, interviewed Irvin and found no evidence implicating him in Jennifer's murder. And by now, police already had another suspect. If they're right... This crime may be even more unspeakable than it first appeared. The one person whose behavior seems strange to them right from the start and someone who happened to have a cut on her left hand was Nora Jackson, Jennifer's 18-year-old daughter. Hours after the discovery of Jennifer Jackson's bloody body, police started wondering about her daughter, Nora, and exactly how she'd injured her hand. Sergeant Connie Justice was the first offer, first officer. Her name is Connie Justice. <laughs> Her name is Connie Justice. Oh, my God. Sounds like a fake character. Yes. yes, right? And it seems like the editor would be like, no, you have to change this. <laughs> yes. So Connie Justice is the first to interview Nora. Nora told her she cut her hand at a community festival the night before the murder. So mm-hmm. the, pre- the whole previous day, she said that she... Um, so the Connie Justice noticed a bandage on it. There was like white medical tape on yeah. the back of her hand. Sorry, the back of her left hand, <laughs> not her right hand, as I was previously motioning. Boy, do not <laughs> mess this up. <laughs> so Nora explains to um, Connie Justice, there were some broken beer bottles and I slipped and I fell. We had been drinking that night. And when I slipped and fell, I cut it. Okay, but. Was the cut on the back of her hand? That's correct. Uh. So to Lieutenant Mark Miller and Sergeant Merritt, Nora's explanation only raised more questions. How do you fall on a bottle (laughs) with the back of your hand? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Detective Kristen also wants to know. Yes. They said it didn't make sense, which, I mean, I'm not understanding how that would work either. Yeah. Because if you, I'm not sure, but she, that's her story. And she falls. I'm maybe if she falls, I don't know, forward and I mean I just I, think th- even if you're drunk and you're slipping and falling, it's your natural instinct to put your hands down, palms down. Yes. To to break your fall. 
the only way I can think is, again, you'd have to be drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe if you were, like, holding something. Yeah. And you fell, and it was just, like, so fast that you didn't have time to get to, your hand yeah. out. But even then, I mean, that's... It's hard to imagine yeah. a way that you could fall and cut the front of your hand, the yeah. top of your hand, on a broken bottle. Yeah. And police agree. They're like, mm, not sure about that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just the cut that Lieutenant Miller um, thought was odd, though. He noticed the way that Nora was dressed early in the morning when they responded to the call. She had a, on a long sleeve shirt, which seemed strange to him because June in Memphis isn't exactly a cool month. Miller wondered if Nora was trying to conceal yes. this cut. Yes. Nora later explained in an interview that she often wore long sleeves. Mm-hmm. I was in long sleeves a lot. Even on the beach, sometimes I'd be in long sleeves. You might see someone in a bikini or a t-shirt, and I might have on something that was long sleeved. It's just the way I dressed. Okay. I am someone who wears long sleeves, like, 75% of my life. And if they're not long sleeves, they're three-quarter sleeves. I was going to say, but, right now, you're rocking yes, the look. I always wear sleeves. Uh-huh. But the majority of the time, they're pushed up. And if it's right. hot outside and you're standing outside with the police, I can't imagine that she's, like, lots of people describe that she had them, like, pulled, her sleeves pulled down, yeah. like, over her hands. The only thing I can think of is that she's going through a crisis and maybe her body is having, like, a shock response, which feels like you're cold all over. That's a good point. Yes. So maybe that's one, but one thing to look at. Would you take the time to go... Run and grab yourself a long sleeve. Shirt. I don't know. Maybe she was already wearing a long sleeve shirt, but she had the sleeves pulled down because she was okay. Okay. going yeah. through that. You know. Yeah. Who knows? This is just you know speculation from Detective Brandy here. Okay. <laughs> Detective Brandy Justice. <laughs> Memphis police then started asking Nora's neighbors and friends about her relationship with her mother, and that's when Sergeant Tim Haldorfer started hearing about the fights. Mm. Nora and her mother had problems, Heldorfer explained. Nora wanted to be an adult on her own, and Jennifer was trying to straighten her out. And just hours before Jennifer was killed, one of Nora's friends said they heard her say, my mom's a bitch and needs to go to hell. Ooh. Um, It's pretty damning when your mom dies hours later. But I also think... Who hasn't said, oh, God, my mom's a bitch when you're a teenager? Like, I wrote it in my diary when (laughs) she, (laughs) and I know everyone will be on my side. Um, She told me that I couldn't go to the mall with you, actually. Mm. I couldn't go to the mall with you and a bunch of our other friends because my room was messy. And so, like, my mom is such a bitch. That's right. All caps. (laughs) All caps. Stand by it. No, I don't. <laughs> so, that's not great that she said no, that. And then the mom died that's later. That's was found murdered later that day. Yeah. Um, Jennifer's friends said that she felt guilty about being a single parent and was hesitant to discipline Nora because oh. of that. Um, but in recent months, Nora had gotten 
out of control. She was mm-hmm. reportedly drinking all the time. She was smoking pot. She was abusing um, prescription drugs. She had a Lortab um, prescription, which is a pain medication, okay. because she had endometriosis. But reportedly, she would yeah, not take them as prescribed. Right. She was abusing them. And so Jennifer had tried to crack down um, and be more of a disciplinarian in an attempt to rein her in. So to detectives, this sounded like a possible possible motive for murder. Like, she didn't want to be reined in. She wanted her freedom. Well, what teenager doesn't want their freedom? I was going to say, uh, that's... Yeah. That's not a strong motive to me. Yeah. So what teenager doesn't want their freedom? What teenager hasn't fought with or cursed at their parents? Yeah. Um, it happens all the time. But police thought this became much more. They thought this was a case of matricide, um, which <laughs> is not the killing of mattresses. <laughs> Although that is a terrible crime. This <laughs> <laughs> is the murder of a mother by her own child. I see. <laughs> Thank you for expanding my vocabulary. I look forward to correcting the next person who makes that mistake. Nora's activities the night of the murder just added to their suspicions. Police believe Jennifer Jackson was killed in her home between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Nora's friends said they last saw her at a party around midnight. Hmm. So where was she later? Yeah. What little they do know came from Nora's statement to Sergeant Connie Justice. (laughs) Sergeant Justice to the rescue. (laughs) She said she'd purchased some cigarettes. She rode around. She went to Taco Bell. I'm sorry. I just made a fart noise with my mouth. I don't know why I did (laughs) that. I don't know. I don't know. I was just listening and I was kind of nodding. and I just forgot we were recording this. Anyway, uh-huh. Sergeant Justice is on the case, and Nora tells her that she, after she left the party at midnight, she went and bought cigarettes, she drove around, smoked cigarettes, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> and went to Taco Bell. Is that your Taco Bell noise? <laughs> it always is. <laughs> but there was one stop Nora failed to mention to police. Uh-oh. She went to Walgreens and purchased some medical care products. Police mm-hmm. learned about her trips, her trip to Walgreens when they found a bag filled with first aid products in Nora's car. In the bag were bandages and peroxide, things you might need to clean up a cut. So the receipt says that they were purchased at 10 after 4 a.m. Oh, no. And she's telling them that she got the cut the whole, yes. a whole previous night before. Although I do understand prioritizing Taco Bell over medical <laughs> treatment. <laughs> so after they found the bag, police took it to the nearby Walgreens to check the sales records. And then he asked to see the video surveillance system. And sure enough, here comes Nora walking into Walgreens. Nora admitted that she bought those things to treat the cut that she got the night before the murder. Um, But police thought that Nora was behaving as though the cut was fresh. On the video, she asks the clerk for a paper towel and she dabs the cut like it's bleeding right then. Well, and I just don't understand why you would wait that long. Right. And then all of a sudden at four in the morning, you're like... Oh, yeah. now this is an issue. Now I'm going to yeah. go get it taken care of. So um, 
I don't have this in here, but later, um, someone brings, Nora tries to say that she had told her mom the night before that she needed the bandages and her mom had written it on the, like the grocery list, Uh Uh, but they couldn't authenticate that grocery list or know when it was written, of course. Okay. So. Okay. I don't know. I, I have big questions around this trip to Walgreens here. It just, the timing of it seems very odd. But it seems, it seems weird to me. That she might have potentially fabricated a grocery list, Mm -hmm. but it didn't occur to her to, like, leave open a garage door or hide that Walgreens Walgreens bag. bag. It just seems seems weird. I agree. Um, This next part, I think, also raises some questions. So police also examined Nora's cell phone records and noticed a pattern that they thought was suspicious. Nora seemed to live on her phone, but that night, between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., there was nothing. She wasn't on it at all. There were, you know, Mm. not the normal, you know, text messages for a two-hour period. And that two-hour period happens to be when they think that Jennifer Jackson was murdered. Wow. Yeah. It's not great. No. So that, like I said, that cell phone was nonstop, except for that limited time frame Mm -hmm. from one to three, which is when police believe that the murder took place. By 3 a.m., Nora was on the phone again. She was calling friends. She drove to a friend's house. Heldorfer said she did this to have an alibi. She had somebody who'd seen her. Mm. Um, Heldorfer believes Nora then headed back home, ran to her neighbor, and called 911. And in the process, Heldorfer said she may have dropped one more clue. The 911 call taker asked Nora, do you like how I said 911 call taker? Not. Oh, yeah. Instead of dispatcher. (laughs) (laughs) The 911 call taker asked Nora, has your mother been shot? And she says no. Oh. Heldorfer says, how is she going to know that? I don't think the average person under those bloody conditions could tell whether or not those were knife wounds or gunshot wounds. Yeah. She was adamant on the call, though. It was a no. I, I'm i kind of with him there. I mean, if I it's blood too. everywhere. Yeah. And you're truly shocked. I mean, yeah. yeah how would you know? How would you know? Huh. Yeah. So that's, I have a question with that one, too. Mm-hmm. So... Detectives now have their theory that Nora is the killer, but there's one big problem. There was no DNA, blood, or fingerprints from Nora at the crime scene. How? There was DNA from someone else, though. Shut up. Yes. Oh, my God. This is crazy. Yes. Later, so later, they actually break the DNA down, and it's possible that it came from two people or even three people, but Jennifer and Nora are excluded. It cannot be from either of them. They never what? have found who that DNA is connected to. Yeah. My mouth is hanging Right? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. 
And, okay, so the DNA, like, blood from someone else, fingerprints from somebody so else. they think um, blood and then either, like, sweat or skin cells. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Male or female? They didn't say? mm Okay. Nope. Whoa. Yes. Even though the police had almost no scientific evidence against her, they were convinced Nora hated her mother Mm-hmm. snapped that night and killed her in a fit of rage. I think the biggest concern everybody had was we don't have an eyewitness. We don't have the smoking gun and we don't have DNA, said Sergeant Heldorfer. I would say so. But what we had was a lot better than what we didn't have. Mm. They didn't have anything. No, I mean. They had weird behavior. Yeah, which is something. It is something. It is something, but it's not better it's than not DNA better evidence. It's not better than DNA or a smoking gun or an eyewitness. <laughs> yeah, I hate that statement by him. I think that's just dumb and arrogant. Yeah, and it shows that you think everyone else is dumb, too. Yeah. Um, I may have not gone to Harvard, but I... <laughs> But damn it, I went to DeVry, and that's better. (laughs) That is so ridiculous. It is. I think it's the most ridiculous statement. Three and a half months after Jennifer Jackson was stabbed to death in her bedroom, police finally arrested her daughter and charged her with first-degree murder. Her bond was set at $500,000, and unable to make it, she sat in jail awaiting trial for the next three and a (gasps) half years. Yeah. What? Yeah. Three and a half years. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Finally, in February of 2009, Nora's trial began. It was aired live on court TV. Oh, my God. Um, Nora, now 21, faced a first-degree murder charge and the possibility of life in prison. The prosecution announced, like, we're going for yeah. life. Yeah. Prosecutor Amy Wyrick... I don't really know if that's how it's pronounced. Be confident. (laughs) W-E-I-R-I-C-H. It could be Wyrick. It could be Weirich. I'm going to go with Wyrick. Okay. That's what I like. (laughs) (laughs) From now on, it's all names that Brandy likes. Um, Princess Unicorn. That's right. (laughs) Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. (laughs) What's that That's a Friends reference. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm telling you, that show... It doesn't live up to... Oh, no, it's excellent. You're no, wrong. No, no. That wrong. and Sex in the City. You watch them now, and you're like, why no. did we all watch Friends this? Friends is excellent. We watch Friends. Zach and I watch Friends every night before bed. It's amazing, and you're wrong. Will Zach <laughs> um, be embarrassed when this is... No, broke? I think Nick at Night plays reruns. We just, like, turn it on when we go to bed. I don't think he'll be embarrassed by that. He's a proud Friends lover. <laughs> Zach... Write in to me at lgtcpodcast at gmail.com. You can be honest. It's fine. If you want me to read a list of other shows that you also enjoy, we will do that. So people won't judge. I will say he hates Golden Girls. He gets mad every time I watch Golden Girls. Yes, which I love. Norman? He's mm-hmm. obsessed with the Golden Girls. Is he going to be embarrassed that you just said that? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. He he and his mom used to watch it mm-hmm. all the time growing up. <laughs> and he introduced it to me. What? Yes, he introduced it to me. And this was a couple years ago. We were all on this big family vacation. Uh-huh. And Norman put on the Golden Girls. 
And my dad thought he put it on as a joke <laughs> and kept waiting for the joke to end. But no, half an he, hour later. I was just watching Golden Girls. Thank you for being a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loved it. Back to the murder trial, Kristen. <laughs> Does like that I'm, like I'm shaming you, but yeah. I'm the one that changed the topic. You are the one who brought it up. Yes. Does like, Zach what? <laughs> the thing against old sluts is that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he loves Sophia, hates Blanche. Oh. <laughs> Blanche is my favorite. <laughs> We're going to have real problems. Yes. <laughs> okay. Murder time. <laughs> This is the second time in this podcast that we've discussed the Golden Girls. <laughs> also in another stabbing murder, right? Well, yeah, I only cover stabbings. Well, right, out. yeah. <laughs> kind of a one-trick pony. Yes. <laughs> okay, go okay. for it. Prosecutor Amy Wyrick had never tried a case of matricide before. She said... <laughs> <laughs> you thinking about my mattress jokes? <laughs> When I thought of that one, when I was trying this out, I was like, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> I love my puns. That's, and that is a good one. I like that. What are you saying? My other puns aren't good, Kristen? You read me very well just then. <laughs> that was a slap to all your other puns. Okay, so Amy Ryrick. Wyrick said, I've been told that this is... Jesus. <laughs> you threw me off. I now have a stutter. <laughs> I like to think that you just, like, said her quote very accurately. And she's just a really sloppy prosecutor. The jury's like, what? what? <laughs> she's like... She's like the lawyer from my cousin Vinny. Have you seen that? No. He can talk fine when he's, like, dealing with it just as client. Uh-huh. But as soon as he gets up in court to say something, he has a horrible stutter. Oh, and no. he can't even get one word out. <laughs> so she's the real-life version. Yes. <laughs> So she said, (laughs) I have been told that this is very rare. In fact, it couldn't be rarer. Less than 2% of all murders in America are matricides, (laughs) a child killing their mother. And of those, just a fraction of them are committed by daughters. I was going to say, yeah, that seems more like a dude crime. Super rare, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wyrick had to convince jurors that this is one of those all but unheard of cases. But if the jury was looking for forensic evidence against Nora, Wyrick was in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. A DNA expert called by the prosecution, which I think is a weird, I mean, they're the ones that called the DNA expert, but I feel like maybe this is that same thing from West Memphis when you're like, okay, we're just going to get it out of the way. We're going to talk about what we don't have. Yep. And then move on. Here's my weaknesses. Yes. But also I've got a heart of gold. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Prosecution calls a DNA expert, and they testified that Nora's blood and DNA were not found at the crime scene. Um, Nora's defense lawyer, Valerie Corder, questioned the um, DNA expert thoroughly on cross. This is part of their exchange. Okay. Why does your face look like that? What do you mean like that? This is my face. <laughs> okay. No, but the reason my face looked like that. <laughs> I knew it looked like something. 
because you were slowing down so I much was, between words, and I was like, what I was struggling. She, I was trying. I not was to like, stutter. I, <laughs> I was like leaned in and squinty eyed. Like, what is she gonna say next? You had me intrigued. Okay, so this is the exchange between, or part of the exchange between defense lawyer um, Valerie Quarter and the DNA expert Kadia Debman. <laughs> Q-A-D-I-A-Y-Y-A-H. It's the double Y that it's throws like, me off. <laughs> it's like they're begging you to say yes. it right. Like, this is your yes. challenge. Yes. Okay. I'm quarter. DNA evidence is essential to solving crimes, yes? DNA expert. Yes, it is. Quarter. Within all of the items you tested, the pillows, the pillowcases, the sheets, the light switch... On none of those items did you find Nora Jackson's blood or DNA of any kind. DNA expert. No, I did not. Mm-hmm. When interviewed later, Quarter said the state's theory was never, let's draw conclusions from the unalterable scientific facts. It was, let's construct a case based upon a teenager's behavior. Mm. Which is pretty yeah. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> As the state presented its case, Nora sat quietly alone in court. Not one member of her family stood by her side. (gasps) Well, that's why she stayed in jail all those Mm -hmm. years, right? I mean, no one wanted to bail her out. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Um, In fact, Cindy, Cindy Eidson, Jennifer Jackson's sister and one of Nora's aunts, was a witness for the prosecution. Oh, wow. I had a lot of conversations with Jennifer and the problems that she was having, Eidson told the court. She testified that Jennifer and Nora had a heated argument about Nora's drug use and party lifestyle just one week before the murder. Jennifer said, you can either go to boarding school or move out. I'm sick of it. You're 18 years old and you're still in the 11th grade and partying all the time and I've just had it. Nora's uncle testified that right before the murder, Nora seemed unusually interested in what she might inherit if Jennifer died. Oh. Jennifer got on the subject about having Nora well taken care of if something happened to her. That Nora was on the life insurance policy, Eric Sherwood told the court. Told the court. (laughs) When asked by the prosecution how the conversation came up, Sherwood said Nora asked Jennifer how it all worked. So... The uh, timing is odd. Yeah. But I don't know, asking what would happen if something happened to you, I don't as being that you only have one parent. Mhm. Mhm. Being curious about how, what would happen to you if that person if something happened to them. I don't think that's all that crazy. No. Um I I'm trying to think though about that age. Mhm. But but you're right, though. I think having just one parent, that does change things. That does impact how secure you feel. So here's a little tidbit okay. that I'll add in mm-hmm. that might give you a little bit more background on that. Fifteen months before Jennifer Jackson was murdered, Nora's father was also murdered. <gasps> yes. No. Yes. He owned a convenience store. In a bad part of Memphis. Oh. And he was uh, killed assassination style inside of his convenience store. And the murder's never been solved. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So I think knowing that, yeah, now it makes it makes sense. that question mm-hmm. make even more sense. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, what if she didn't do it and then yeah. Oh, then she's just got the most tragic life. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Holy crap. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, her friends weren't doing Nora much good either. Oh, great. Uh, Kirby McDonald was the teen who said she had heard um, Nora curse her mother at the party just hours before the murder. Nora said, my mom's a bitch and she needs to go to hell, McDonald testified. Mm-hmm. And Nora told the police that she drove around after the party and didn't get home until 5 a.m. But prosecutors said phone records show Nora at her home around the time of the murder. Nora's friend, Clark Schiffany, sure, testified that just before 1 a.m., he got a call from the Jackson's house phone. Seconds later, he got another phone call, this time from Nora's cell phone. Mm-hmm. This is what they said about that. I think she accidentally picked up the house phone and realized, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. Let's hang this up. And then turned right back around and called him from her cell phone. Yeah. 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 So she's saying that she hasn't been home all night until 5 a.m., but somebody called this person, and phone records show it, that somebody at the house called Nora's friend just before 1 a.m. And why would that have been her mom? Right. Yeah. Unless she was trying to figure out where her daughter was. Where her daughter was. Okay, there we go. But. But I don't buy it. But the call from the house never fully connected. Yeah. Was hung up immediately. Yeah. And immediately following it, yeah. Nora called him from her cell phone. Yeah. I don't think that looks great. It does not look great. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Most of the prosecution's case is based on what Nora did after the murder, like that early morning trip to Walgreens. Mm-hmm. Why is she at Walgreens buying liquid bandages and hydrogen peroxide at 10 after 4 in the morning? And why is she not telling anybody about it, Wyrick said. Joe Cock. (laughs) Joe, if that's not how you pronounce your last name, I'm very sorry. It's either Cock or Cocky. I can't imagine it's pronounced any other way. It's C-O-C-K-E. Coke? (laughs) It would be great if it was Coke. And he's like, damn it! Anyway, Joe Cock lived across the street. He said Nora woke him at 5 a.m. after the murder. She said, my mom, my mom, somebody's breaking into my house. I reached up in my closet and grabbed my pistol, he Mm -hmm. testified. Cock said he ran with Nora back to the house. And Nora went in in front of me. She went in right in front of me. And I found that odd because somebody was breaking into the house. And he's the one with the gun. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Tim Heldorfer thought that was odd, too. If someone's in the house, why would you run back in? Let the man with the gun go in first. She led the way. I think that doesn't look great for her. But it also kind of sounds like you. <laughs> You're yeah. absolutely right, because I do not react well. We have learned from incidents where people are in my house that are not supposed to be there, or people are possibly in my house. Yeah, you're like, let's not bother the police with this. Yes. I'll go confront this strange yes. man on my own. The guy that's in my garage, I'll just say, hey, what's up? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. No problem. Why get the police involved? <laughs> so, I... 
agree with investigators. This does not look good. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, in the early hours of the investigation, Jennifer's friend Genevieve Dix noticed that Nora was acting strangely. Um, she testified, I wrapped my arms around her and hugged her, and she just stood there. She had her sweatshirt pulled down to her knuckles. Hmm. So that's what I mentioned earlier with yeah. her hands kind of tucked yeah. in. But I think the fact that she just stood there and didn't hug back, that could just be the way she reacts in a crisis. I don't think that's that odd. No. And some people don't want to hug you back, yeah. lady. Maybe you don't need to testify to that. <laughs> like that <laughs> might just be a you thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so prosecutors argue that Nora was trying to cover up that cut on her hand. Okay. And every time anybody was around her for days later, she's wearing long sleeves. It's 600 degrees outside and she's hiding it. Why? Why, Rick asked the court. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that she said it's 600 yeah. degrees outside. <laughs> <laughs> Defense attorney Corder challenged almost every detail of the state's case, including how investigators handled the hair found in Jennifer's hands. So, in both of Jennifer's hands, Mm -hmm. there were strands of hair, like, that she had grabbed from whoever was attacking her. Yeah. The state never had the hair analyzed. Oh, come on. Mm Mm-hmm. So, quarter hammered crime scene investigator David Payment um, for almost two days on the stand. And she asked him, you know, several questions about this, about how the whole crime scene was conducted. Here's just a little snippet of their, um, their interaction. Quarter. Showing, she's showing him a picture, I believe, at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, what is this in the entry hall? Is It's a cat, isn't it? David Payment. Oh, yes it is. Quarter. So a cat walked around the crime scene while you were in charge of it. Payment. Uh, yes, ma'am. Quarter. So the cat may have left trace evidence? Payment. The cat may have digested evidence. Are you... What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's like, let me do you one You're better. Right. <laughs> Unreal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> As Nora Jackson's murder trial wound down... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes. There was hair... There was hair in... There were strands of hair in both of her hands, and the state never tested it. Okay. Is it that it didn't look like it belonged to Nora, and so they didn't want to know I have more? not heard the hair described, so I don't know how long it was. I That's don't know how what much I there know. was. Yeah. yeah. Because Nora had long, dark hair, and she had very thick hair. Okay. And so, yeah. like, if they're long, dark strands, maybe they didn't test them because they're like... We don't want our case to be any better. I, I mean, why would I just yeah. don't know why they wouldn't have tested those. That seems like the most idiotic move. Unless. Unless it, they thought there's no way these are hers, so we're just going to pretend those don't exist. Mm-hmm. That's me being cynical, yeah. but that's uh, that's honestly what I'm thinking is if yeah. you've got who you want to get. Yeah. You don't want to. you think this is going to draw attention away from that, then we'll just pretend this doesn't exist. I have a question. Yeah. Are defense attorneys, I guess maybe depending on how much money they have, but are defense attorneys able to hire their own experts to then go test that stuff? Or is it like crime scene investigator does all that and, you know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. It's Damn an interesting it, question. Damn it. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know the answer. Hmm. 
Because, yeah, you would think, why wouldn't the defense just take that evidence and get it tested then if the state wasn't doing it? Unless you, you unless know, they, unless either they, they can't, can't or they don't have the they funds. They don't have the funds, which Nora Jackson didn't have any money. Oh, this yeah. attorney was, was, it was not a public defender, but she was um, representing Nora for pro bono. Wow. Yeah. She just felt like. Yeah, she okay. felt drawn to the case. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so as Nora Jackson's murder trial wound down, Jennifer's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Pastor Mark Irvin, took the stand. Mm -hmm. This is what, this was a little um, interaction that he had with Prosecutor Amy Wyrick. Wyrick, during this point, were you broken up? Irvin, we were. Wyrick, had it been a violent breakup? Irvin, not in any way. And that's the truth. (laughs) Who fucking said? We are not the Gestapo. Right? Like, what a weird thing to say. Uh, yeah, that's super it's weird. super weird, right? Yes. <laughs> it's like anytime anyone says, I'm going to be honest with you, you're like, yeah, mm-hmm, you're like mm-hmm, hold on. <laughs> Here we go. Hmm. <laughs> Irvin admitted that on the night of the murder, he called Jennifer, but he claimed he was at home 90 minutes away. Before I even possibly heard it ring, I just said, it's too late to call. So he testified that he hung up the phone and went to sleep. Mm. (laughs) Right? I think that's weird. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like that one bit. Near the end of the trial, Wyrick introduced the only witness who placed Nora at the scene of the crime in the crucial time before her mother's body was found. Andrew Hammock, a friend of Nora's, testified that she had called him between about 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. and asked him to meet her at her house. Wyrick asked Hammock if Nora had ever done this before and if he considered the request normal. Mm-hmm. He said no. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Jones, the assistant prosecutor, said in his closing argument, she needed a cover up. She needed someone to go inside with her so that they could say, yeah, I was with her when she found her mother's body. Wait, I thought it was the neighbor with the gun who went in with her. It was. Oh, okay. But they're saying that they called that she called this friend to help. And the friend didn't end up coming. Oh, okay. But that was her attempt. Oh. To get, to draw somebody else in. She okay. called this friend and said, hey, come to my house. Yeah. A lit before she'd found, according yeah. to her version, before she'd found her mother. Yeah. Ugh. I don't like any of this. I know. <sighs> yeah. After nine days, the prosecution rested. Nora never testified. Mm-hmm. And Valerie Corder believed the state's case so weak, she decided to rest without calling any witnesses. Ooh, bold move. It is a bold move. It is. Ooh. In her closing argument, Corder told the jury, the brutal, ugly truth is that this was a brutal, ugly crime and a brutal, ugly, incompetent investigation. Let's put everything on this side of the courtroom that does not indicate Nora Jackson killed her mother. And she's like physically moving the evidence at this time. Basket, pillow, comforter, none of Nora Jackson's blood. Step stool, bag, another pillow, bottom sheet, hoodie, none of Nora Jackson's blood. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask you to return the only verdict, the real evidence, the forensic scientific evidence justifies, and that's not guilty of any charge. 
But Amy Wyrick had the last word, and she reminded the jury of the one burning question from the night of the murder that remains unanswered. Just tell us where you were, Wyrick yelled. That's all we're asking, Nora. And she's like Mm. in the courtroom staring right at Nora yelling this. I feel like that shouldn't be allowed. She's not allowed to respond to that. Mm, It's interesting that you say that. Oh, did the judge agree? (laughs) (laughs) More on that later. Okay. (laughs) Wyrick tried to convince the jury one last time, despite the lack of forensic evidence, this was one of the rarest murders, that a daughter stabbed her mother to death. And there's one picture that keeps playing over and over and over in your head. You know the picture we're talking about, Wyrick told jurors. It's the picture of an 18-year-old, enraged, out of control, Nora Jackson snapping. It's the perfect storm that is brewed. It is the volcano that has erupted. It is the spring that has sprung. (laughs) Okay. The jury deliberated for nine hours before returning a verdict. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a pretty pretty quick deliberation. I'm always surprised by how quick these mm-hmm. are. I feel like people are like, I'm ready to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This was not a long trial. It was like two weeks. Still, Still though. Yeah. Still, I mean, yeah. we're talking about somebody's life. life. I mean. Yeah. I'd like to think I'd be like, hey, guys, let's get Mm -hmm. to know one another for a while here. Yeah. Okay. They found Nora guilty of second degree murder. And she was sentenced to 20 years and nine months in prison. Um, I thought the nine months was maybe like a little like jab about your mother carried you for nine months. Like, yeah, that's why I thought maybe it was like they'd reduced some for time served because that is so weird. I think it's like specifically nine months because she killed her mother. Damn, that is that's, dramatic. That's, that is well, bringing I mean, the that's drama. How I read it. I mean, I well, yeah, no, that that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why? Why else? Why would you else? Have been nine, nine months. months. Yeah. Five days after the jury found Nora guilty in 2009, Stephen Jones, the assistant prosecutor on the case, filed a motion to submit an omitted statement. What is that? Mm, What's an omitted statement? So this is something that the prosecution had that they never turned over to the defense. Not okay. Nope. So this was a handwritten note that Andrew Hammock... Nora's friend, the one that testified that she called Uh in between 4 and 5 a.m. and said, come to my house. So this is a handwritten note that he gave to the police in the early days of the murder investigation. Jones said that he received Hammock's note from the police in the middle of the trial, tucked it in the flap of his notebook, intending to give it to Quarter, and then just forgot about it until he was putting all the stuff away from the trial. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this note that the prosecution have and they never turned over to mm-hmm. the defense, Hammock says that on the night of the murder, he had he left his cell phone with a friend and that he was rolling on ecstasy. Um, Quarter, who had asked Wyrick and Jones repeatedly before and during the trial if they had given her all of the state's information related to Hammock, believed that the note raised questions about Hammock's credibility mm-hmm. that she would have raised during trial. Yes. She, of course, would have brought those up. Based in large part on this newly disclosed evidence, Quarter appealed Nora's conviction to the Tennessee Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So, 
Years go by, though. Oh, my she gosh. She submitted this appeal. Finally, on August 22nd, 2014, the Tennessee Supreme Court unanimously overturned Nora's <gasps> conviction. Whoa. This is what they said. It is difficult to overstate the importance of this portion of Mr. Hammock's testimony. The justices wrote, pointing out that no DNA evidence linked Nora to the crime scene and that the blood of unknown individuals was present in the victim's bed. Hammock's notes suggested that he might not have told the truth when he testified that Nora called and asked him to meet her at the house, the justices said. The court also explained how Nora's lawyer could have used that note to argue that Mr. Hammock himself was a plausible suspect. Yeah. This is interesting. Okay. The note contradicted Hammock's alibi, opening a line of inquiry about his whereabouts when Jackson was killed. And it cast in a new light a visit Hammock's friends made to the Memphis police station a week after Jackson's murder, which Corder attempted to explore at the trial. The friends reported that they didn't know where Hammock was that night and that he had been acting strangely since then. The police never pursued this lead. So he has three friends that go to the police and are like, hey, this dude's acting fucking weird. And we have no idea where he was that night. Yeah. And the police are like, we got this. We've already got our person. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. The Supreme Court called Jones and Wyrick's failure to disclose Hammock's note before trial a flagrant violation of Nora's constitutional Mm -hmm. rights. The justices also overturned the verdict against Nora for another reason. Wyrick's closing exclamation in front of the jury demanding, just tell us where you were. That's all we're asking, Nora. The Constitution's protection of the right to remain silent means that the defendant's decision not to testify should be considered off limits to any conscientious prosecutor, Mm -hmm. the Tennessee justices wrote, so that the jury doesn't view it as an implicit admission of guilt. Wyrick was doubtless well aware of the rule, the justices added, citing three previous cases in which appellate judges criticized her and her office for making (gasps) prejudicial statements to the jury. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Nora learned that the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed her conviction in August of 2014 while she was watching her cellmate's TV in prison. What? She didn't get a phone call. She saw it on TV like everybody else. What? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, that's insane. Insane. She had been locked up for nine years oh by gosh. then. And she had said she'd just given up on her appeal. Yeah. In the last 50 years, the Tennessee Supreme Court had reversed only one conviction because the prosecution had failed to turn over evidence. Whoa. So she was like, it's not going to happen. I'm just going to mm-hmm. serve my time. She actually was, she had adapted to prison life pretty well. She'd made friends in there and, you know, she was getting by. And so she had just kind of resigned herself to this is my life. You know, I have to do my time. I'm going to get out in less than 20 years because of good behavior. And she was working in prison and whatever. And so Uh she was just like, I'm just going to do my time and then I'll get out of here. Wow. And then she finds out that they've overturned her conviction. Oh, my gosh. So um, Wyrick immediately announces that they're going to retry her. And the defense... um, Quarter continues to work on the case, and then they bring in another lawyer as well to work mm-hmm. on this new case. Um, and they argue for months 
that there needs to be a new prosecutor on the case. They're like, this is a conflict of interest. She can't try this again. And finally, in May of 2015, they are successful and a new prosecutor is assigned the case. Hold on. Double jeopardy. I mean, not if it's been vacated. Okay. If it's been overturned, they can try him again. Okay. I guess I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because essentially that conviction never happened. (laughs) Even though she spent nine years of her life. It's like that trial never happened. Okay. Yeah. So, I, um, I guess I'm looking at that, like, the same way I w- look at annulments. Of, like, right. um, okay, okay, okay yeah. sure. Yeah. So, in May of 2015, a new prosecutor is assigned to the case, and the new prosecutor offers a deal. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to through trial again, they offer a reduced sentence if she pleads guilty to manslaughter. Um, her lawyers... Nora's lawyers checked with the Tennessee Department of Corrections, which they say told them that she had enough credits for good behavior and for working in prison to be released the same day that she signs that deal. Okay. So she's like, okay, I can take this deal Mm -hmm. and I can get out on time served. Yep. But there's just like this part of her that's like, this is pleading guilty. Yeah. I I didn't do it. It's the same thing with the West Memphis story where they're like, we didn't do this, but we know... If this goes to trial again, they've convicted they've convicted me once. Who's yeah. to say that they can't convict me again? And then I'm done. Yeah. I'm absolutely. out of appeals. And so Nora's lawyers continue to negotiate with the prosecutors and they get it lowered from a guilty plea to an Alford plea. <laughs> uh-huh. So on May 20th, 2015, she enters an Alford plea, which for everybody maybe who doesn't remember or didn't listen to that episode, an Alford Why plea. Why didn't you guys memorize <laughs> that episode? An Alford plea is where the defendant um, pleads guilty but maintains their innocence. They basically say, I am maintaining my innocence, but I am recognizing that the state may have enough evidence to convict me. And the deal is you can't, like, go back and sue the state. You can't go back and sue the state. Yes. So she signs this Alford plea, and she's expecting, you know, I'm going to get out in a couple days. I'm time served. But a few days... I don't like your tone right now. A few days after signing her plea agreement, Nora learned, in fact, that she did not have enough credits (gasps) for release. She had more than a year left to serve. What? Yes. So the Department uh, of Corrections basically chalked this up to like a... Oops. Yeah, a housekeeping error. Like, well, we miscalculated it. Or we never told them that for sure she had enough, you know. Nobody takes responsibility for this. Oh, my God. This error. Um, She said that her regret was unrelenting. She had to go back to prison to face friends that she felt like she had disappointed by taking the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had traded vindication for her freedom. And now she had neither. Oh, my gosh. So this is she said, I didn't I don't even know if I cried. I remember feeling sick and embarrassed and ashamed. And she said she kept feeling that. Now, for what felt like nothing, it was her fault that her mother's murder file was closed. Mm-hmm. On paper, I'm the killer. Even though I maintain my in- innocence, that's what the cops look at. So somebody's just getting away, and I helped make it happen. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty... That's that would be horrible. a devastating feeling. Finally, in August of 2016, Nora Jackson walked out of prison still... Proclaiming her innocence. Mm -hmm. 
This is what she said upon her release. The prosecutors in this case deceived the judge, my lawyers, and the jury by hiding very important evidence. It shouldn't have been allowed. Just one month later, disciplinary hearings began against the two prosecutors in her case. (gasps) The Tennessee Board of Professional Responsibility recommended that Amy Wyrick and Stephen Jones accept a public censure for failing to disclose Andrew Hammock's note in Nora's trial. So public censure is basically a public admonition, like you admonishment? Admonishment. That's the proper word. (sighs) So basically a, a public slap on the wrist. Yeah. And the prosecutor said, no, we want a hearing. We don't believe we did anything wrong. So we want a trial. We want you to, we want this argued in front of a panel of, uh, of lawyers. And we want them to determine if we did something wrong. So Jones went first. Um, and in January of 2017, at a, two-day hearing, he denied remember remembering Hammock's note at critical points in the trial that might have jogged his memory, including Hammock's testimony mm-hmm. and Jones's use of that testimony in his closing argument. Mm-hmm. But a panel of three Memphis lawyers, one of whom was a former prosecutor, called Jones's account entirely credible and found him not guilty. Praising the result, Wyrick announced that the Tennessee board had agreed to dismiss the charges against her in exchange for a private reprimand. So basically like, oh, don't you do that again. I I hate that. I can't. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me so angry. Mm-hmm. And you said that people had been on her about stuff before. Yeah, it happened before. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. How do these people have it in them to keep going? I have no idea. You're uh, fucking with people's lives. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But clearly they don't think they did anything wrong. I think that's how you do it. You convince yourself that you're just doing what you need to do to get the bad people put away. Mm-hmm. And you can't always follow the rules. That's right. When you're, oh God. Yeah. Nora now lives in Nashville with a friend she met in prison. The Innocence Project is working with her to use updated DNA testing methods to identify the sources of the biological material found at the scene of Jennifer Jackson's murder and fully exonerate her. Yeah. That is a crazy one. It is pretty crazy. And I think what's so crazy about it is, like, I agree that there's some evidence that looks like she could have done it. Oh, yeah. I mean, her behavior was wacky. Yeah. Her behavior was not good. Yes. And I'm, I totally understand why she would be the main suspect. Yeah. But no DNA. There's DNA at the scene and it's not hers. And not tested. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. So the Innocence Project is working on this right now. I mean, it, she hasn't been out of jail that long. You know, this mm-hmm. is still a pretty, pretty active thing um, for the Innocence. Actually, that's how I saw it. I saw this case initially through a post uh, from the Inter- Innocence Project. So they're actively working on this to try and get her exonerated. But I mean, it, if it happens, it will take years. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. And still, her father's murder has never been... This poor woman. Um, so Jennifer, just like a little end note, Jennifer Jackson had a one and a half million dollar life insurance policy and Nora was the beneficiary of that. Her family, Jennifer Jackson's family, is fighting her in court to get that. Yeah. Okay, very cynical thought. Yeah. You said they all stood against her through mm-hmm. this whole thing. 
Do you think the money had something to do with it? No, I don't know. That's a really cynical thought. Yeah. Yeah. So another another belief um, is that so the people who were involved in her father's death mm-hmm. could have been involved in her mother's murder because of the way his death, his murder was like assassination style. It was done just off of surveillance video at his convenience store. Mm-hmm. And then um, Jennifer became like the executor of, her, of his estate after his death. And so wow. if he was involved in something weird, which there was rumors that there was, right. somebody could have killed her because of something she knew or something they were afraid she knew or in order to get something. Yeah. So that's all speculation, of yeah, course. Yeah. His murder's never been solved. Yeah. And I don't wow. know that it's being actively investigated anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was a crazy one. <laughs> That was so good. It makes me even more ashamed to have done a landscaping case. No, I think it's good you did a landscaping case. We needed some balance. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, I will try not to do a stabbing case next week. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. I think why I'm drawn to them, Hmm. because stabbing is so personal. You have to be right there in somebody's space. It just is such a crazy way to murder someone to me. See, the thing I always like about yours is I always am like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh, no way. <laughs> you know, like there's always, I'm, yeah. I'm like, well, this is kind of predictable. Yeah. Oh, shit, oh, it's not. No. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, if you like to do the stabbing ones, you do stabbings and I'll do whatever the fuck. Love it. Which is, which has been our, oh, that's our, been our theme. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, con artists, insight, Paul Hogan sex tape. That's right. Have I done murder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've done yeah. murder. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, calm yeah. down. Everybody, yeah. calm down. Yeah. I've done we murder. We got plenty of murder around here. <laughs> <laughs> so just sit down. That's right. Hmm. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you oh, love stabbing, I was like, how are we going to wrap? If you this love up? stabbings like I do, or enjoy landscaping like Kristen does. Wow, then. I sound really lame. <laughs> Go like us on our like our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate us, leave us a review. Um, follow us on Twitter at Let's Go <laughs> the Number Two Court. Court, and we now have an Instagram which is LGTC Podcast. Find us on all the you know your social media platforms, and uh, tell tell one person. Can we let you listen to this podcast? Tell 500 people. <laughs> tell one or 500 people about this podcast. Whichever is more convenient yes, for you. That's right. <laughs> so this past weekend, um, I was out to dinner with my family and my, my dad was asking uh-huh. questions about the podcast. And he was like, and I can't remember what he was saying, but he was like, basically, have, have you guys thought about polling your audience to discover blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, yeah, we'd love to do some audience polls. I mean, the problem is that we'd basically be polling our family uh, and friends. (laughs) And let me tell you something. Norman laughed too hard at that. (laughs) He was slapping his knee. My mom loves the podcast. (laughs) Big fan. Big Big fan. fan. She thinks we're hilarious. So... Uh, 
if you're like my mom <laughs> and weren't at all offended by the Insight episode, <laughs> then do all those things we mentioned. Find us on social media and then tell, let's start with five people. Tell five people. Tell five people about the podcast. And then join us next week. When we will be experts. Oh, I didn't realize you were going to throw it back. On two whole new topics. (laughs) (laughs) I was so proud of us because it seemed like just a perfect. It was flawless until I tried to volley it back to you. Podcast Podcast adjourned. Fuck, Kristen. (laughs) Wait, one, two, three. Podcast Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from Kansas City Star articles by Judy L. Thomas. And I got my info from the 48 Hours episode, My Mother's Murder, and a New York Times article by Emily Bazelon. (laughs) For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff and watch that episode of 48 Hours. You've got work to do. (laughs) 